We will be looking at Acts chapter 13 here in our evening doctrinal class, and um, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, your word tells us that we are to study your word to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I pray that on my part that you would help me to rightly divide your word to be able to show what your word means to each of us and that in turn that each one of us would be willing to uh, hear, not just be hearers only of the word, but that we would be doers also. So I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged uh, in the study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 13. So we've got one little section here at the end of the introduction. It should be page 8 on your notes uh, or on your questions. And uh, what I want to do is I want to give you just a little bit of background. I know it's going to be page 8. It's going to be letter G. What is the spiritual value of sound doctrine? Oh, page 6. Okay, that's right. My apologies. I'll have to ask you. I completely forgot. Um, I've got my notes typed in here as well. So it's mine, mine are going to look a little bit different. So what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of a narrative, a historical narrative of something that I believe was taking place in the first century church. This would have been during the time of both Peter and Paul. Peter, of course, being the main uh, minister or missionary or apostle, if you will. Uh, and he was, uh, his predominant focus was to the Jews. In fact, we even find later on in around A.D. 55 to A.D. 60, Peter writes the books of First and Second Peter. And if you'll remember, in, in verse uh, 2, he writes and he says, actually I believe it's in verse 1, he starts off and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers or to those who were part of the exile scattered throughout the diaspora or through the dispersion, and this would have been all of the Jews who would have had to have left uh, the area of Jerusalem and Antioch. Uh, they are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ now. They are not Judaizers. And they have had to move out under persecution, continued and increasingly intensive persecution. And they have been scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor. This is the area that we're talking about here with Peter. Um, and then Paul, of course, the first... 12 chapters or so of the book of Acts really deals with the ministry of Peter and the Jewish apostles. And then comes along a guy who is on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to him and calls him. And of course, this is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is one who is an apostle who was born out of due time. And uh, he is called to be predominantly to the Gentiles. Thankfully for you and I, um, this was the task that he was given. It must have been pretty difficult, though, for Paul to be in this situation. Because out of everybody, out of every one of the apostles, you would not have probably found a more religious, diehard uh, individual when it came to Judaism than the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. The very first king, of course, was King Saul. He's of this same tribe. He's a member. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and this really is where we go back to church history because 
excuse me, church history reveals to us what the early New Testament church went through. And it's like anything else. Over time, it began to degrade. And you had already, by the end of the first century, there's already doctrines that have infiltrated the church. Everything, for example, and we're going to look at this later, uh, Gnosticism and, and, and the belief, for example, uh, in dualism. That's one of the things that, that some of those at the end of the first century were believing. Uh, they believed that, that, God the, uh, that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, the man, were actually two distinct individuals. And there were two main groups that found themselves in this, uh, within this group that was within the church. And some of them believed that Jesus Christ, the man, was actually distinct and bodily from Jesus Christ, who was God. And then there were some who believed, for example, that Jesus Christ didn't literally rise from the dead. That, that it was only some kind of a spiritual, uh, uh, in, in some kind of spiritual way, did Jesus actually rise from the dead but his bones actually were secreted away somewhere um, as we find at the end of one of the books. And it says that the disciples, the story was that the disciples hid his bones. And there were actually some who believed that. But then you have some lesser issues like 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And these books are written because the church in Thessalonica believed that Jesus Christ had already come and that they had been left behind. What hope would it have been for the early New Testament church if some were taken and some were left? What was the standard then that every church was to believe or every believer, what was their hope? You see, Paul had already made it very clear that their hope was found in who? In Jesus Christ. Well, if you could imagine, what if, what if half of you showed up here tonight and the rest of us weren't here? I mean, wouldn't you begin to wonder, did I get the right night, or what was going on? And, and, and this is what had happened in the church at Thessalonica. And they weren't getting a report back from the Apostle Paul or anybody, and they're afraid that all of these things that they have believed, they have believed in vain. I mean, it's the testimony of the church at Thessalonica that has actually gone out to the entire region of Asia Minor. I mean, everybody knew who the Thessalonians were. But the Thessalonians didn't know who everybody else was. And so they're afraid that they've been left. And of course the Apostle Paul writes and he encourages them. In fact, at the end of chapter 4 he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Don't worry, people at Thessalonica. Don't worry, dearly beloved brethren. When Jesus Christ returns, every true believer will know that he has returned. In fact, so will the entire world. They will know that he has come back. And for those who do not believe in him, it will be too late. There is no second chance. So in Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul are actually sent, and they are on their way to Cyprus. Then they come back, and in verse 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 13, and we're not going to read all of this, but I just want to touch on a couple of highlights here. Uh, Paul and his companions, they set sail. Uh, John Mark leaves them, returns to Jerusalem. That's actually a very gracious way of saying that John Mark was a flake. Uh, because John Mark actually was a flake at that point. He has bailed out on them. Uh, in fact, the division is so severe between Barnabas and uh, Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, that eventually uh, Barnabas actually goes out on his own with John Mark. And of course, we know that Paul actually then ends up going with who? Silas. 
He goes with Silas, and of course, if you have read the account of Acts chapter 16, uh, they find themselves in a little town called Philippi. Um, they're singing, they're having a revival meeting down in the prison, and an earthquake breaks out, and of course, the Philippian jailer and all of the little jailers all get saved as well. And God saves that entire household. But before we get to that point, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is speaking, and or he's getting ready to speak, and on the Sabbath day, in verse 14, he goes into the synagogue and he sits down. Now, Bible studies are nothing new. When you went into the synagogue... And whoever was the one that was considered to be the most learned was given the opportunity to take the floor. They would read a passage of scripture. They would then sit down. All eyes of the people would then be focused on that individual. And the purpose of that, per, of that individual then who had sat down was to be able to expound the scriptures to tell you something that might be able to help you in your life. This was the purpose of the synagogue in the first century church. So listen to what happens. The, after the reading from the law, after the reading from the prophets, um, the rulers of the synagogue send, send a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and says, Thought you'd never ask. And he says, and he gives to them a little bit of a chronological background on what has taken place. He reminds them of things that they already knew, things that they had been learning for years. And he talks about uh, them being seven, uh, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, verse 19. He gives them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. So he has given basically a snapshot, and I think it's important to say this here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have been given some of the messages that I believe that we see in Scripture. But it is not to be assumed that everything that we read here is everything that they actually said in real life. For example, I believe that there are many times where we read a sermon, uh, uh, for example, um, and later on, I believe it's Acts chapter 26, 25 or 26, where Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he gives a little bit uh, a little bit of a message there and he basically preaches on sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. I don't believe that that short little message is all that Paul had to say. I mean, I think Paul, a very learned man, probably spoke and waxed eloquent for quite some time. He was able to be able to maintain his audience. So this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing Paul is given a little bit of a chronological or a timeline and he has condensed 450 years essentially of history, which they could have found by reading the law and reading the books of Moses. And out of that, he is getting ready. He is setting the stage. He's doing the exact same thing that he would do in Acts chapter 17 when he goes to Athens. Listen, if you and I truly have the truth of God's word and we understand God's word and how it was written to us, the message should never change. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter whether you go to Grace Community Church, John MacArthur, or, or to uh, Steve Lawson's church, or any of the churches that my dad pastored, or, or myself, or, or any of you who have been involved. And if you have been in a biblical church, the message that we proclaim, it's going to be a different style. It might be in a little bit different format, but the truth remains the truth. You can't change that. 
Because truth is not subjective. Truth is based on God himself. Jesus Christ is the truth. In fact, Jesus himself said that in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's not one standard for us and and another standard for all the other churches in Cheyenne or in the world or in Burma or Myanmar or India or China or Russia or North Korea. The standard is still the same. And the standard that was proclaimed by the Apostle Paul himself is the same standard that we have here. So he is speaking and he says, again, he gives a little bit of he's gone from the law. He goes then through the prophets. He goes through David the king. And he says, brothers, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to you or to us has been sent the message of the salvation. Somebody asked me two weeks ago or so about apologetics. Apologetics is simply the defense of the gospel. It is not the defense of scripture. It is the defense of how we present the gospel to a lost and dying world. What he is doing here in this passage, Paul is actually appealing to the intellect. He is appealing to reason with them just as he did or as he does in Acts chapter 17 when he goes and he reasons with the people. And he starts off by saying, I came through your city. I saw that you're a very religious people. That was an understatement, by the way. Every it, They said that there were more gods and more altars in Athens than there were anything else. And he says, I happen to see one of them, and one of them says to the unknown God, he's the one that I'm going to proclaim to you tonight. And all the people in Athens probably thought, oh, this is great. We've been wondering what his name was. And they get to the end, and he gets to the resurrection. And what do the people say? The Bible tells us that some of them mocked him. Some said, we will hear you again of this matter. But others believed. That's really what our focus is. And Paul's concern was not about numbers. It was that the people that, 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 the people that he was proclaiming the gospel to out of... When Paul went into, the, into a new city, and I've heard my dad say this down through the years... Paul looked for two things. He looked for the local prison and he looked for a synagogue because he was going to end up in both of them. And so when Paul actually goes into a new city and he hears or he, he finds where the synagogue is and he goes in and he proclaims the gospel to them and he shares the message, one of the first things that happens is he gets kicked out. I mean, in some cities he wasn't there but two or three weeks. And what does he do? He comes out, he takes the people who are the worthy ones, those who are willing to listen, and he proclaims the message of Jesus Christ. And then he turns them over and commends them to the grace of God. Now, you know, that's, that's kind of hard for people like my dad and I who have been missionaries. Uh, there's no way that we would have turned somebody over in three weeks. I mean, there's just so much to learn. There's, there's so much baggage. But here's what you have to understand that a lot of the people who were that Paul was actually reaching, these are people who knew the scriptures of the Old Testament better than you and I probably ever will. 
They knew the context. They knew what was being said. And it was simply a, a transfer, if you will, and believing that what the scriptures tell us in the law, what has been prophesied by the prophets, has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And once that transition has been made, now all Paul has to do is be able to show them the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, and the Holy Spirit then helps and guides them to be able to grow. Now, some of us have had the privilege of being in third world countries or, or countries where maybe it's a little bit difficult in regards to persecution. And I can tell you this, that down through 2,000 years of church history now, that God is gracious to his church. And persecution does two things. Persecution, firstly, matures true believers and secondly, it actually grows the church. Always. It's not something that we should be afraid of. I know I've talked with, with Mike, for example, and, and, and a couple of others here. And, and yeah, I don't like the thought of pain. I don't like pain. But I can tell you that if God is glorified in my life someday through martyrdom or through some kind of persecution or prison or whatever it may be, then may his will be done. He will give us the grace at that time to be able to endure that. But we can't think that we are going to avoid that, whether it comes in my lifetime or the lifetime of my kids or our grandkids, whatever it may be. Paul is very clear when he writes to Timothy and he says, those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And the question is whether we're going to be ready for that or not. That's why reformation is necessary. That, that's, why, that's why I believe that we find uh, there was a time when, when we would have had a class like this and, and we used to sit right down there where Gabe's at. Uh, wave your hand, Gabe. Some of you may need binoculars to see him. But way down there at the far end, and it was my family and maybe two or three others that would come when we first started here because nobody was interested. But the more time goes by, I believe that what we're seeing is that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing through his Holy Spirit that something has to change in our lives and in our church in order for us to be able to be prepared for the future. And that's what I want for each one of us here this evening. So as Paul continues to speak, he then goes on and he speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 32. He says, and we bring you what? What does your Bible say? Good news. Good news. I'm bringing you good news. You believe you have read the law, you have read the prophets, you've probably read them for centuries here, and yet I'm bringing you the good news, and that is this. In verse 33, that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled. Why? Or how did he do this? By raising Jesus from the dead. Wow. Close the books. Go home. Let's rejoice now. Because that's really what it was. It, it, was, it, was, it was probably a wow moment for some of the people who were in that congregation sitting in the synagogue. Wait a minute. You mean the same God that raised or that allowed Abraham to keep his son Isaac? Do you mean this same one that has been promised by the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago? You mean this Jesus that we keep hearing reports about in Jerusalem who was put on a cross, who died and was buried? Do you mean he actually did come back to life? And Paul says, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Wow. 
You see, now we've got hope. Now we don't have to worry about somebody else coming. Now we don't have to worry, is, is this guy going to be it? Is this guy going to be it? No, he's already come. In fact, not only did he come the first time, but now he's going to come a second time. And he says, and he reminds them in verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, he is still quoting the Old Testament here. And he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. He saw corruption. In other words, he went through decay. His body fell apart. Worms ate his skin and his flesh. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You know what he's done? He's just shot down the Mosaic law. And what he's done is he has said, you know what, everything that you thought that you could do beforehand means absolutely nothing because Jesus was the only one that could accomplish it. But there is hope for you. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 41. Beware, lest what it is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Boy, Paul should learn to read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You know, when, I, when we got off the plane in Liberia, I, I first thought when I went there, to be honest, I didn't want to go to Liberia. When, we first went, when I first went on a mission trip, um, I've got a little book that I wrote uh, some time ago. It's been about three or four years now. It's available in the library. You're welcome to take it. It's called From Scam into Blessing. And I got off the plane, and within about 24 hours, I realized I had been royally scammed. I had fallen for a Nigerian-type scam. I have flown from England, and I have flown seven hours down to Liberia, West Africa, and I know nobody. Okay? I'm not going to ruin the story. You can go up and get it for yourself. But when I got off the plane, God had to do a work, and the story tells how God did a work in my heart to be willing to go to a place like Africa when I didn't want to go in the first place. But you know what I found when I got there? The people were just as depraved as the people here in America. And there was nobody lined up at the airport. There weren't lines of people sitting in, in a stadium waiting for me to share with them the good news that God could redeem their souls. You know what I found was that people were quite content in their sin. Just as they are here in America. But look at verse 42. As they went out, now this is a multitude of people who are leaving, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout, notice it doesn't say all of them, and many who were converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Could you imagine? Let's put this into perspective. This is a pretty big city. And to put this into perspective in modern terms, we present the gospel we share it with you, and you guys go out and tell everybody in town, and next Sunday, out of 65,000 people in Cheyenne, 60,000 of them are sitting out here in the parking lot waiting to hear the message. 
This is essentially what we're talking about. And what does Paul do? He tells them the exact same message. Sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. There is no other message to be able to share. You need to understand that there is a sin that separates you from a holy God. You need to understand that the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ alone has been imputed to you if you will simply believe and come to Him by faith and to realize that at the coming judgment there will be only one of two categories of people. Either you will stand before God and He will be your judge and cast you into everlasting damnation or you will find yourself standing before Him as He is your Savior. There are only two options that are available. The message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And the reason that Paul is able to do this, and we have shared all of this information, and the reason is because of this. Paul gets to this point in every city that he goes to, in every place that he goes, on all of his three missionary journeys, and then when he makes the final trip, and he goes to the island of Malta, and he finds himself going up the, the, the western side of what is now the country of Italy, he's doing the same thing. He is preaching sound doctrine. He's not making this stuff up. He's telling them the exact same thing. So the people who are in Italy versus the people who are in Asia Minor versus the people who are in Jerusalem or in Antioch, they're hearing the same message. Jesus Christ saves. This is why we can have missionaries or be involved in supporting and sending missionaries. Breck Merkel is currently in the Middle East or in, in the Far East. He's going into Myanmar and India and Pakistan. And we help support these <coughs> national pastors. And they're going up into the hill country of places like Myanmar, places that you and I will never go. And they are proclaiming the same message that you're hearing tonight, but in their language. Sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. You see, you can't introduce anything else because it no longer becomes sound doctrine then. It was the same message that my dad has preached for 45 years. It's the same message that I have preached for 30 years of ministry. Telling people, warning them of the wrath to come, but warning them that there is hope for anybody who wants to come, for anybody who desires, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life and drink freely. Romans chapter 10, whosoever will may come. So having said that, what is the spiritual value of sound doctrine? At the bottom of page 6 as I understand it. We're not going to break all of this down, but I just want to touch on a couple of points here so that we can go on then to the next part of the prolegomena, which is simply a fancy word meaning the introduction to doctrine. Okay. So what is the spiritual value of sound doctrine? Number one, it is spiritually profitable. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. That is the wonder of what we have when we are looking at the word of God. The more you study God's word, all you're doing is you're preparing your life for what is to come. Number two, spiritual blessings for obedience. We talked about it this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are the commandments that the Lord Jesus Christ gave? Number one, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I, I like, was it, was it you, Sister Melissa, that made that comment this morning? That in, in the message that you listened to as part of your homework uh, from Jim Berg, uh, the, the, the point was, and I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it because we've heard so many from, from Jim Berg. But he says that somebody came up and he was saying that he had a problem with his wife. And he says, I don't know that I can love my wife. And he says, well, love her as your neighbor. Well, I don't know that I can love her as your neighbor. And he says, well, then love her as your enemy. (laughs) The point is, in the New Testament, we find a completely different perspective than what we do in the Old Testament. And that is that we are to love with an agape type love, a sacrificial Christ-like love. You see, if we are to love like Christ loved, how did he love us? He didn't love you when you were lovable. He loved you and I when we were unlovable. Number two, or number three, the spiritual value is that it does what? Guards against sin. Psalm 119 verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word. If you're struggling with something in your life, some particular sin or a besetting sin within your life, go to God's word. Don't try to handle it on your own. You can't. You are not going to be able to defeat the evil one and his minions when they come knocking on your door apart from doing it through Jesus Christ. Number four, it delineates between truth and error. error. Now, there are some things, and we have talked about this in the different tiers or the levels of of doctrine. You know, we we talked about the first level tier, the fundamentals of the faith. We're not going to have fellowship with a church that doesn't believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can't do it because they don't hold to the same perspective. They don't believe what God's word has to say in regards to the truth. So we're never going to be able to fellowship with that kind of an individual. But we can disagree with somebody over the timing of the rapture or the end times or the Bible version they use or the type of hymn book they use as long as what they're doing is not violating the sound doctrine. But to be able to do that, you and I have to know the difference between truth and error. For example, we talked here recently, um, or I mentioned it, um, I believe it was last week, and I talked about The Chosen. Now, some of you may have watched The Chosen. Some of you may like it. It's, It's great TV. The problem is that Dallas Jenkins has actually introduced, it started out subtly, in this last season, in season three, he actually has Jesus quoting directly verbatim out of the Book of Mormon. And I bet you that most Christians completely missed it. And you know the problem is, it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's what we see, what we believe, it doesn't matter what we sing. Uh, there's, Dad, Dad was sharing with me a video yesterday, and I've seen the video uh, on, on Hillsong and Bethel music. You know, we don't, we don't stay up late at night trying to figure out who we can hate on this next week. But a lot of churches think that's exactly what we're doing. And there may be some people here in, the, in, in our congregation who think, you know, don't they have anything better to do than to pick on so-and-so or to pick on this or to pick on that? Listen, the reason those groups have popped up and that music has popped up and those shows have popped up is because there are not enough people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who believe sound doctrine. And so those things have gained a worldwide following. Number five. 
spiritual value is that it is central to Christ's and these next these next three points here are the same. Essentially, it's central to Christ's ministry. He says the same thing. The apostles say the same thing. It was central in the early church. This doctrine was necessary. It was the same truth. You have a gap of about 30 years in which the Lord Jesus Christ has returned to heaven. You have Paul, the Apostle Paul who has met Jesus as one who was born out of due time. And he goes and he writes to the church at Corinth, this is the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They still believe the same thing 30 years later. The Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation, and he says, he who is and was and whoever shall be forevermore. Revelation chapter 1. You want a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't look in a Cracker Jack box. Don't listen to what the world has to offer. Don't listen to, to what religious fervor nuts have to tell you about I supposedly <coughs> went to sleep or I went to heaven and visited for 45 minutes or 90 minutes and I came back and I wrote a book so that I can write, so I can make millions. That stuff is all a load of hocus. Because God doesn't operate that way. There is one way that he operates, and that is right here. It is his word. You want to know what Jesus Christ looks like? Read Revelation chapter 1. And then rejoice that he has even given us a picture of himself. Amen? Number 8. Who gave their lives for sound doctrine? There are a lot of people who are willing to die for a cause. But down through history, you have people who are of the Hindu faith or who are Buddhists, uh, maybe down through the years. Anybody remember uh, the event, for example, in Vietnam of uh, the one guy who set himself on fire? It's, it's probably in every National Geographic book. He, he died for what he believed in, but he believed that he was going to be reincarnated. Everybody who dies is a martyr outside of true biblical Christianity dies for what they can get in the next life. You know, for the believer, there's no promise of anything other than seeing Jesus. There's no promise as the Muslims do. If you die in the Islamic faith, you will find yourself with 70 virgins on the other side. There's none of that for true biblical Christianity. It simply says we will see him. We will look upon him who is the author and finisher of our faith. What a joy that is set before us. When, when, when these martyrs, uh, during the 1500s, for example, under Bloody Mary, Queen of England, uh, when, when they are tied to the stake and they've got gunpowder, they've got chains around their bodies, they're being held to the stake and they've got gunpowder and the flames are coming up, they're not even allowed to say goodbye to their families. What is it that they're dying for? They're dying for the cause and the sake and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not because they're somebody special. <coughs> Number nine, we have a mandate to pass on sound doctrine. You see, this is the problem that I've got with a lot of churches today and even within evangelicalism. Uh, you can stand up and you can, you can open up the Bible using the lucky dip method and, and find yourself something to preach on or something to be able to teach on. The problem is, if, it doesn't, if it's not going to change your life and more, make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm wasting your time. But the mandate that we have is Jesus Christ himself said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples and teach them what I taught you. 
For 2,000 years, the mandate hasn't changed. Number 10, churches were commended or condemned based on their doctrine or lack thereof. If you want to know whether, whether what we believe is, is, is of any importance, read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you will find seven churches in which some of them were completely condemned by Jesus Christ himself for their lack of doctrine or their wrong doctrine. Doctrine, <coughs> excuse me, doctrine is vital. Number 11, it anticipates and prepares the hearer even when the world may think that it is out of season. Doctrine is not easy, as, as some of you have already shared with me at different times. It feels like we're drinking out of a fire hose. Yeah, that's true. There are times when I'm sitting there, and, and I was sharing with Dad, and I think with Violet this last week, and we had gone out to eat, and, and, and they said, well, make sure you take your time when you're going through the information that you have. It, it, it takes out of, out of a 45-50 minute message, that's actually the result of maybe 10 to 12 hours on that one sermon alone that we're presenting that information. There's a lot of stuff that I have read that I have had to prepare in my own heart to be able to present then to be able to, or to be able to present to you something that out of 168 hours this next week that you have come with the purpose of devoting an hour, an hour and a half of your time to hear the truth of God's word. I better get it right. And you and I better get it right. Number 12, it protects the church from false teachers. You can go down to the local Christian bookstore and you can find books of every stripe of every kind and some of those people that they carry at the bookstore, it is simply done for the purpose of being able to make money, but a lot of that stuff is heresy. A lot of it is false teaching. If you want to know some good material, feel free to come talk to me. I'll be happy to tell you some things that are based purely on the Word of God, not based off of people's <laughs> opinions. Number 13. Spiritual value, sound doctrine, provides true spiritual... You know, you can go anywhere in the world and if you get off the plane and you find a group of believers, you'll be able to worship with them whether you understand or not. There is nothing like going into a group of people like we did in Liberia and hearing these people sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ in their own language and you didn't have to have anybody translate for you because you knew who they were worshiping. You know who they were praying to. And there is a beauty that is surrounded. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that beautiful are the feet of those who or give the gospel, the, the gospel of good tidings to those around the world. And it's not just those who give the good tidings, but if you believe sound doctrine, I believe that we see that we are a beautiful person in the eyes of God. Because if it was important enough for Christ in the early church, it should be important enough for us. And then finally, it is inseparably connected to theology. Listen to this quote that I have there. All biblical teaching <coughs> is theological in nature, and all Christian theology is biblical in context. That pretty much summarizes what we believe. And, 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 and the point of biblical Christianity, by the way, is, is, is not to make you a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal, a Charismatic. That, that's not the purpose of coming to faith in Christ. 
coming to faith in Christ reveals that we recognize that he takes us where we are at. He takes us in the midst of our sin and he redeems us. There won't be any signs over the doorway of heaven that says welcome to Yellowstone Baptist Church. It'll be welcome to heaven. And the only way that we're going to get there is the same way that people have gotten there down through 2,000 years of church history. It is believing in Jesus Christ alone. Plus nothing and minus nothing. If you try to add to salvation or take away from salvation, the Bible is clear that you cannot know Jesus Christ. This is why we ask him to remove our doubt. This is why we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not about in the formula in which we pray. That The purpose for these things is so that we might be able to acknowledge that we see ourselves as God sees us. And then we look to Jesus Christ and recognize that we are truly in need of a Savior. This is why we do the things that we do. This is why we say the things that we say. We're not sitting here on a Sunday night because none of us have nothing better to do, according to the world. But for us as true believers, we don't have anything better to do than to be able to study God's Word. And in that, we should be able to rejoice. Turn the page. Next lesson. Biblical doctrine. We're going to be able to go through several of these. Fairly quickly. What is a worldview? From page 50, a worldview comprises one's collection of presuppositions, conviction, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and life. In other words, how do you view work? How do you view your family? How do you view your marriage? How do you view driving down the road? You see, all of those things are going to, it's going to be impacted in what your worldview is. Do I see the world from man's perspective or from Christ? So what might that look like? Well, if your presupposition is that God simply put the building blocks for this universe in place and then just left it to toddle along on its own so that now we find ourselves in the year 2024 and, well, God has just got his hands off. He'll just leave you alone. Make it to the best, of you, that the best way that you can. No. The presupposition is that there must be some kind of truth. Some absolute truth. And what is the absolute truth? The absolute truth has to be found somewhere. Because we didn't evolve. There's no such thing as evolution. We didn't start off as a polywog or, or as a can of Campbell's soup in a muck somewhere. God created man for one purpose. This is what makes us different from the animals. We have a soul. A soul that has been... <coughs> excuse me, a soul that has been given for the purpose of one thing, and that is we are given an intellect to be able to know who God is. You can go, you can go, to, any, go to any Stone Age existence or you can go to a first world country and you will find they have the same problems no matter what country you go to. Gabe? I, I'm sorry. Are we skipping to the second? 
didn't, we're not doing 42 to 50. You went 42 to 50. 50. You went straight to 50. Uh, hold on. I may have my pages out of order. I thought I had everything. I've got the... Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I did. I sure did. We can always go back and yeah. That 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 uh, forty-two to fifty. Yeah, because we've covered this right here. Forty. A word anyway. Forty-two. Yeah. Okay. We we'll we'll get back to that because I think this part on 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 a worldview is going to be important when we look at that section there on on who the king is. Okay. So go ahead and go to page where it says. Introduction, Prolegomena, pages 50 to 67. And it should be page 1 on those notes. I realize some of you may not already have this, the answers done, but that's fine. We'll actually tie back in, Lord willing, next in our next session, we'll go back to those pages. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Which one? Um, it's it's going to be in the other room. Uh, Hannah will go get one for you. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, George Whitfield. We just did George Whitfield last week. Yeah. And where that uh, person came up to him and we were talking today and says, Why do you always preach that you must be born again? And he says, Because, ma'am, you must be born again. Yep. Uh, who was it, Dad? Was it, was it D.O. Moody? who went and hear, heard the young man preach in the first Sunday, or the first service he got it preached on John 3.16? Somebody who was taking his place, who was filling in for the pulpit. For D.L. Moody. Moody. Yeah. He preached and, seven. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I think he preached seven messages. The next seven days, it was a revival, and he preached the same text, John 3.16. Yep. And, and, and every service, people came back and they said, well, surely he has said everything there is to say about John chapter 3, verse 16. And the next night, there will be another message on John 3.16, over and over and over, until the people got it. I remember somebody once saying, the, the, the story is told, and I don't remember which minister, but he stood up and he preached his message on Sunday. And the next Sunday, he got up and he preached the exact same message on the Sunday. And there were a few raised eyebrows, but most people don't listen anyway. And so the third Sunday, they come back, and don't laugh, Gabe. And, and so the third Sunday, they come back and he preaches the same thing. And finally, one of the deacons comes up and he says, why are you preaching the same thing every week? He says, I'll, st I'll preach something different when you get this one down. Yeah. <laughs> Carl F.H. Henry said, Evangelical theology dares harbor one and only one presupposition, that the living and person of God intelligibly can be known in his revelation. That's amazing to me. That... that, that the God of all creation not only desires to make himself known, but is knowable through his word and through creation. Romans chapter 1, uh, the Bible tells us that even creation longs to be released from the sin that binds it. Everything about us is decaying. Everything is dying. But one, thing, one day everything will be made new. 
Into what two parts was this major presupposition broken down? This was found on page 50. Number one, God exists eternally. What good would it be to believe in a God who doesn't exist forever? Well, why would we want to believe in a God who, who can change his mind or, or, or who changes with the seasons, who changes with the evolution of man? I mean, we have the Industrial Revolution that started roughly in the mid to late 1700s. I mean, what kind of God would he be if, if he changed to be able to match what man was doing? Well, what if the same God who we believed took the children out of the children of Israel out of Egypt took them through and took them into the promised land did all of the miracles in sparing their life listen i don't care whether there was a million a hundred thousand people or six million people that came out of Egypt the fact that god provided them with manna in the uh, manna and quail every single day for 40 years is a miracle the fact that, that God could have the, the people of Egypt follow them out and try to chase them down to be able to bring them back into slavery. And, and the world would say, well, no, it was actually the Reed Sea. And they walked through, not on dry ground, but they walked through across the Red Sea or the Reed Sea in two inches of water that barely touched their ankles. Hey, I don't care how you want to look at it. It's still a miracle that the entire Egyptian army died in two inches of water. Yes. I mean, Seriously. The world wants to come up with every possible excuse to be able to undermine God. Somebody was asking me in regards to creation. You know, you can't argue with the world in regards to what the Bible has to say. It can only be, it can only be believed by faith. I wasn't there at the beginning. You weren't there at the beginning. There was only one person who was there in the beginning, and it wasn't Adam and Eve. It was God. And God says, let there be light. There was light. Let there be trees. There were trees. Let there be waters that are divided. There were waters. And then on the sixth day, God created the pinnacle of his creation and he created man. That's amazing that God would do that. I mean, out of his entire creation, it's not the monkeys, it's not the lions, it's not the zebras or the giraffes that give God problems. It's man. Secondly, God has revealed his character, his purposes, and his will in the infallible and inerrant pages of his special revelation, the Bible. These are the two parts of this major presupposition. You see, you either believe God and take him at his word, or, or you have nothing to go based off of. If, 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 if you were to come up to me and you were to say, for example, well, I'd like to go to England, I'd like to take a trip over there, what should I see? Now, my mom and myself, because we've been to England, we can tell you some of the sites that you can go and see. But you can either choose to believe it or you can say, well, you know, just because you've been there doesn't mean you know anything about England. Well, you want to know about God? Go to the guidebook. Go to the travel book that talks about God and what he has done. Because the, 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 the course of history right from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall, we find man and, and woman who have been placed in the Garden of Eden, and God has done all this wonderful thing, and he says, hey, here's an entire world for you. Go out and populate it and take care of it. And the people say, you know what? We'd rather listen to Satan. And they rebel. Man isn't any different. We still rebel today. Number three, 
What distinguishes the Christian worldview from other worldviews? Number one, the Christian worldview, from page 51, recognizes the God of the Bible as the unique source of all truth. It's not something that we can argue about. You can try to argue, but God defends himself. Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God alone knows your heart, and he knows mine. He knows your mind, he knows my mind. He knows your will, he knows my will. Jeremiah 17 makes it very clear, though, that the will of man, the heart of man, is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. And only the Holy Spirit of God can come in and change you and give you a new will, a new heart, a new life, and make you a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm glad it has. I mean, Brother Gabe, let's talk for just a moment. And, 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 and what, if, what if we were to look in the scripture and we weren't sure what the standard actually was? And here I am, I'm standing up on a weekly basis, I'm preaching, and you might be thinking, well, man, if I can't stand up and preach every single week, what hope do I have of getting to heaven? You see, because standing up and preaching isn't the criteria. The criteria is believing the Word of God, believing that God is who He said He is, believing that we are who He says we are, and then bringing redemption to us, buying us out of the slave market of sin. What a glorious God we serve. Number two, the Christian worldview relates all truth back to an understanding of God and his purposes for this life and the next. When we talk about the ministry or the preaching that was given in the Bible and we talk about the, 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 the preaching of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment, the, tru the truth, again, points all back to understanding who God is. God is holy, we are not. God lives forever. We do not in this life. We are going to die. If you don't believe me, look and see how many gray hairs you've got on your head. They're coming. Because that is it is appointed and man wants to die. And after this, the judgment. Mankind is not getting better. Mankind is getting worse. Number four, in discipleship, what framework does a Christian worldview provide? Page 52. Number one, we can understand the world and all of its reality from God's perspective. Listen, I don't care if you're having trouble at work, trouble in your marriage, trouble with your kids, trouble with your grandkids, tr tr trouble keeping your foot off the accelerator and you're getting a bunch of tickets and life is falling down around you. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, there is principles that are found in God's word that can help guide you to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you go through in this life. Now, I used to hear this when I was in Bible college. And there are some of us who used to think maybe if we go outside, the, the name of the girl that we're supposed to marry is going to be written in the clouds one day. No, God's will isn't like that. God's will is very simple. Number one, after we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, His will is that we be holy. It's that simple. So I can make a decision. I can turn left or I can turn right at the end of the road. I could choose to marry this person or I could choose to marry that person. I could choose to go to that college or that college. I could choose to not go to college. I can choose to take that job or not take that job. As long as I'm doing it for one purpose and that is to bring honor and glory to God. The first of the catechisms, and it's found in the Westminster Catechism, it's found in Spurgeon's and Benjamin Keach's Catechism for Kids, and that is this, what is the chief end of man? 
Say it again loudly. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's it. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Nobody. There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. That pretty much takes care of all that the world has to offer. It goes right out the window because what it has to offer is mere baubles. And secondly, we can order our lives according to God's will. God's will is not hard to find. God's will is simply that we be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. This is why we have been chosen. This is why we have been predestined. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, He doesn't leave us alone. He saves us. He keeps us. He preserves us. And He's coming back for us again. What more could you want out of biblical Christianity? Last one this evening. Again, what is the chief end of man? This is found on page 52. To know and to glorify God. It, whatever it is that you're going through in your life, you and I can bring glory and honor to God by simply giving Him the credit where credit is due. You know, I, I, can, I can remember growing up and there were times that I would, when I first started out, I used to have uh, the most I ever had was 31 model airplanes, all put together, all hanging from strings on my ceiling. I had little wires and things all over the place. They crisscrossed on my ceiling in my bedroom, and I put just about every one of these together. There were two or three that I actually pilfered off of my brother who managed to put some together because I liked the plane, and so I traded him for something else. And I can remember as I put each one of those together, I, I couldn't have put them together without some kind of a guide or a blueprint or a plan knowing what, which piece goes where. And sometimes you get ahead of the instructions and you think, oh, well, I want to go ahead and finish the cockpit or I want to finish this part of the plane or this part of the ship or the car or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you find that it doesn't actually fit in the model because it's got so much glue on it or it's got so much whatever that... Well, you've blown it because you didn't follow the instructions. Brothers and sisters, you and I sometimes are getting ahead of God. And there are times that we need to just back off and we need to say, Lord, you provided the instructions, you provided the rules, help me to follow them because the rules that God has given are not grievous. They're not meant to hold us down. They're meant to be able to keep us in line where we need to be. And the rejoicing that comes when we obey the rules. And you know, when I got to the end of making a model airplane and I, and I was proud enough and I had my stickers and my decals on there and, and all of the stripes and all the paint and everything was done just right, I could be proud of that finished work. When we get to heaven and we walk through those gates, we're going to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it's not because we did it. It's not because we wrote, rewrote the playbook. It's going to, be, going to be because God himself and God alone is glorified. And he's the one that's going to keep you faithful as he who calls you who also will do it. He who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So rejoice as you go from here tonight. Knowing that this doctrine, this doctrinal class, this information that we're going over, this isn't done again because we don't have anything better to do. It's not because we want to make you 
very erudite. We don't, we don't want to make you with a head full of knowledge. What we want to do is we want to be able to see your life change. To become more like Jesus Christ. Men, I want to see you become godly men. Ladies, I want to see you become godly ladies. Our children, we want to see them become godly children. Workers, we want to see you become a godly worker. Church members, those who are members, true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to see you become more like Christ so that the light that we have on this hillside here in Cheyenne at Yellowstone Baptist Church shines across the world. And to be able to do that, (coughs) we have to be able to follow the rules. We have to be willing to let him get all the glory, whether we get any or not. Because if we try to get the glory, it's just going to take us, all it's going to do is mess up the picture. Because it's all about him. Are there any questions this evening? I can't believe I've overlooked that one section. I have my notes, I have them all lined out. I don't know where they went. But it's fine. It worked out. Yep. Anybody else? No? Well, thank you for coming. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And uh, again, if you have any questions, uh, feel free. And if you need any of the notes that that you don't have, uh, maybe because you were gone for a little while or whatever, um, then right here in this first room, there's a whole... pile of stuff in there on the on the bookcase and uh, make sure that you've got them if we have run out i'll simply print off some more and have them ready for you all right let's close in prayer thank you father for the time this evening we pray that you have been glorified in what we have shared tonight we ask as we go from here tonight that we would become strive to become more and more like the lord jesus christ we ask this in your precious name and all god's people said Amen.